0: seconds flat. Give me up. Look at Bill! Look at Bill! Look at Bill! Oh, look oh, the, oh. oh. the 10,000 meters. Stand by for the kick of Dave Waddle. If he's got it, he could make it. I think he did it! He did. Dave Waddle
1: wants to go to Bill!
0: This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. He's
1: been broken three times. He refuses to give in. He's been broken
0: Welcome to mile 158 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. It's good to be with you. Travis, I got Phil on the other side of the microphone. Phil, our candy sponsorship has come oh. through. is that accurate? This,
1: most people think of this time of year is fall marathon season. But with me being on the shelf with injuries and truly getting in the spirit of the season, I brought today, you got shoes to talk about. I have the official candy. Of the second flat, flat podcast, and hands down, the fan favorite of our listeners. Wait, hold so, on.
0: Phil. That was an incredible s- slip of the tongue that you just seconds <laughs> fat as you're about to hold a bunch of candy on the screen for me to look at. Go ahead, though. Thank you. This well, is,
1: <laughs> you know, I, I haven't really been training much because I, I took some of my own advice and kind of shut things down for a little bit. And that is the direction I am rapidly heading. And this dot that is sitting in my house right now does not help that.
0: Bill, we are like, gosh, I don't even know, seven weeks from Halloween. You have a long time to eat dots. I'm
1: starting training today.
0: You're getting into it right now, today. Okay. You know, I I have a question for you off of this because your like top three lists of candies and foods have been very controversial, let's say. It's been a lightning rod of discussion in in past episodes. And so I do have a, a question for you. That's breakfast cereal. I thought about this yesterday morning. Okay. (laughs) Let's say your top three breakfast cereals. Ooh. Let's
1: go with Lucky Charms. (laughs) Hands down, number one. Yeah, the marshmallow. Um, Hmm. Number two. Let's, oh, it's got to be Froot Loops. Because the way that the milk changes color as you're eating it, oh, nothing says, like, fruit like that change (laughs) and and number three I'm I'm gonna throw a plug for my five-year-old here and that is oatmeal but it's not traditional oatmeal it's oatmeal with raisins in it where she doesn't eat any of the oatmeal and just picks the raisins out of it (laughs) so So we'll go for that yeah for number three
0: I don't, uh, yeah, I, that is actually a breakfast cereal. You're right. I don't normally put it in the category because it, it's normally served warm. Uh, your top two, that's that's a filthy list. That is exactly what I would <laughs> The reason that I bring this up is yesterday during my run, it must have been a scent in the air or something that uh, it stimulated the senses. And I haven't eaten breakfast cereal in months. Maybe a, I don't know, yeah, a year yeah. or more. I don't know. So it's not something I regularly go to. But I caught a whiff of an odor, which put me in the mind of Golden Grams. Are you Ooh. a Golden Grams fan, Phil?
1: You know, I'm not opposed to them, but I didn't really have them have them all that much when I was a kid.
0: Yeah, I don't think I've had them in probably a decade. Yeah. but but there was something about that. But when I, I sensed it, I thought, man, I am just Jones and holding <laughs> grams. so that might be a purchase I make. Okay, put that good. on the grocery list. <laughs> so Lucky Charms and Fruit Loops, just kind of a wholesome, well-rounded breakfast for doctors. Right. Oh, whole
1: grains, some extra nutritional additives to them. Oh, we, I am the epitome of nutrition here.
0: That temple was built on <laughs> artifact flavoring. All right, people. It is Diamond League finale weekend, and it's coming to America. Pre-Classic gets bumped back from its normal time slot in the spring to be the last meet of the Diamond League season post-World Champs here in September. Kind of exciting that we will be on Big Boy NBC both Saturday and Sunday this weekend. It'll also be on the Peacock. Coverage starts at 3 in the P Eastern time on both Saturday and Sunday. I believe that's a two-hour NBC window both days. There's an extra hour on CNBC on Sunday. So there's plenty of coverage. This is great. It goes up against, of course, college and professional football. But it's a pretty light week of college football matchups. So Saturday afternoon, instead of sitting in for kickoff, Let's watch some Diamond League finals. Probably the biggest excitement is around Jakob Ingebrigtsen going for the mile 3K double and a possible world record chase there after his 2K world record last week at Brussels. Did you watch that, Phil? It's not watched that
1: actively, but I've seen the highlights. I can't get all that excited about that after the uh, the poor sportsmanships he showed at the uh. championships and kind of this contrived nature of the, the world record there. I am curious to see what he does in Eugene this weekend, though.
0: You're so soft, Phil. You know, <laughs> can we just have a, a villain in the sport? Maybe uh,
1: that's well, I'm I'm currently wrapped up with the drama that's going on in the uh, Vuelta España, where uh, American favorite Sep Coos is being actively attacked by his teammates that he has ridden his whole career for. Oh, that's that's <laughs> the drama that I'm following right
0: okay. now. OK, all right. A little side cycling action there from that's Phil. That's right. That was- Good little drop, Phil. Okay, so I get the some people were maybe not happy with behavior at World Champs from Ingerbritsen. One dusting off Josh Kerr's win as saying eh, it's because I was sick. Two making it seem like Josh Kerr was just a lucky beneficiary of being the next guy. But you calling the world record in the 2000 last week contrived. Why are you saying that, Phil?
1: Well, it seems like they purely just set him up for coming off that fitness he had building into worlds to to take a crack at that number, and it's just not a race that that's run all that often. Okay, versus this, you know what we're used to with a fifteen hundred steeple chase, five thousand, something like that. The
0: second point is well taken that you don't see it very often, and so maybe it doesn't garner some of the attention. I don't know that for me that made it less fun. It's a very impressive mark that he put up. And, uh, you know, think about it in the context of running a mile plus another lap is essentially what he did. And it's a pace of like you're running a sub four mile and then kicking down on a bell lap. Uh, It's a remarkable performance. So I, I don't see it as contrived. And of course, you would go after a world record when you already have built that fitness. It's the perfect time to do it. And he'll do it again this week. Maybe it's devalued a hair because he wasn't able to win at world championships. Uh, he <laughs> won the 5,000, of course. If he had won both, if he had gone mile, metric mile, 1,500, excuse me, and, and 5,000, and then taken this 2K record to go with the two-mile record he said earlier in the year. And he, if he then followed with either or both of these potential records in Eugene, we would be talking about like the greatest season in distance running history. It's, I'll take your point you know, on that. I, I would agree with that. It's very close to something incredibly special. So it'll be fun to see. You know, Bowerman Mile is always the centerpiece event at pre. I think the 3000 is probably... Like a sweet spot for him that's really the better shot at the record, but it is the second day. So it'll be fascinating to see, one, if the mile goes really well, does he even double back? And yep. two, if he does, can he run that on back-to-back days at the level that we've come to expect? So it'll be fun to see. Josh Kerr won't be there. He got a win last week at the Fifth Avenue mile and then shut it down for the season. So that's another storyline of this kind of pseudo rivalry that's maybe not a rivalry and now we won't get to see them against each other this weekend but by the time you're listening to this action will be underway at pre and we look forward to seeing what happens and talking about it next time
1: well i'm just excited that we got it on prime time on the weekend
0: it is fun and on the main channel too yeah yeah. Uh, i had this discussion today at work with a buddy i suspect. Viewing audience will be just as big as what we saw for world champs because Mm -hmm. it's on main NBC, which only had a little bit of the world champs coverage and it's in a really good television window and it's here in the States. I think it's going to draw some attention. So it should be fun. Phil, we got a question of the week we want to get into. I like this topic a lot. We are in that time of year where people are getting ready for the fall marathons often the long-run conversation centers around marathon builds. This is a broader topic of just long runs in general, but the question is, how often should my long runs be, and I'll put this in quotes, hard is the question. How often should my long runs be hard? When I pose this to you, your immediate response, I believe, Phil, was all days that end in Y. <laughs> Which may explain why you are currently wounded on the shelf eating dots. Do you want to- There's something
1: to my training strategy that is currently not working right now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps. Let's let's get you healthy and get you ready for Asheville in November on the trail. Let's open this up. I don't think that either of us have a specific answer to this question. I have some thoughts we want to explore, some more questions that we'll raise. Hey, yeah, listen, if you're coming to us for the answers, you should know by now after 158 episodes, you're going to the wrong place. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm just glad they're still listening. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's right. Thank you. Oh, please keep sending the
1: questions. Yeah,
0: Phil, opening salvo. Do you have any thoughts, anything you want to explore immediately?
1: Yeah, I think we probably should hit this on two levels. One is for the beginner runner that's training for maybe their first or, you know, one of their first marathons. Mm-hmm. And I think this really isn't that much of a concern for that runner. I think, number one, they just got to get comfortable with the long runs, period. Mm -hmm. My second thought on this, and we may dive deeper into this in a little bit, but, yeah, I think the harder long run, just as a general part of a training plan, works really well for sometimes those weekends when you maybe crunch for time and aren't able to get out there for, for two hours or so, but you can squeeze in 90 minutes, but Instead of that two hours, let's go 90 minutes as a progression run or with some broken time at, at marathon or maybe even half marathon effort. So kind of as unstructured, but something's better than nothing. As it relates to somebody that's a, a more experienced marathoner, you know, that's in the middle of their training block that they've put in a decent number of you know, just comfortable long runs already. I would say at most, maybe every other mm. long run, yeah you know, realistically, I think probably every every third, so i'll I'll put that thought out there, and I'm curious your response, and then we'll kind of go from there.
0: yeah, great start, Phil. Let me start with the more novice runner from your first point. Some questions that runner should be asking himself or herself. one, how far have you run before? Okay. What, what is the maximum long run that you've done? I'll, I'll remove the one-off of say you ran a marathon once before, but what was the longest you went to for your long run in that cycle? And then how many times have you gone that far is the next question I want to ask with maybe a sub question to B of how many times have you gone close to that far? In in an early episode on long runs, Benji and I dove into my thought that it's not your longest run in a cycle that really matters. It's maybe the five longest runs, three, four, five. It's somewhere in there. What do they average out to? That's a better indicator looking back of what your long runs were like rather than just popping a one off 22 miler. If you were only running 20 miles a week and otherwise your longest run was eight miles and you threw down a 22, I don't know that that did anything to better prepare you for a marathon. You may have wasted your marathon there, it's possible, because you weren't ready for it. And it's not truly an indicator of judging, oh, I've done 22 miles long. Okay, you did it one time. So that, that's an important context for that novice runner. I also would first break up the general types of long runs. Uh, We've gone into this before, but to review, because you spoke about maybe working at marathon pace or progressing or running them easy, I typically will use four basic categories. The first is simply the easy long run, the time on feet, covering the distance or the time. You're right, that's what the novice runner should spend virtually all of their long runs doing
1: for that runner, probably the the hard long run, maybe something as simple as just don't going 30 minutes more on their long run than what their, their average long run typically is. You know, we don't need to worry about efforts or workouts, but let's spend a little bit more time on feet than you're used to.
0: Yeah. That, that's a, a good point because I'll skip ahead a bit here. We have to evaluate what hard means and the difference between hard and challenging. We perceive hard in running as like ending with hands on knees, huffing and puffing. I put it all out there. I went to the well. That's not something I want to do a bunch. I want to do it on race day. I don't want to do it a ton during training. There might be a place for for a little bit of it. Uh, So don't think that hard long runs mean I'm going to the extreme, you might get to like an eight or nine on that scale of 10, but they can be challenging without even getting to that point. And it could just be a challenge because of how long you're on your feet. For the the novice runner who has only gone to two hours, going to two and a half in a half marathon or marathon build, depending on how long you might be out on the course, That could be exceptionally challenging. You're right, just adding time to it. So the easy run is one category. The second, I'll just call the tempo long run, meaning rhythm and effort, not necessarily a specific pace, right? We've talked about that difference between tempo and threshold. And and a tempo run can often overlap very well with marathon pace. But I'm just talking about getting locked into a good rhythm. We might see this called an up-tempo long run. Some folks might call it more moderate or steady. Regardless, it's faster than a normal day. Uh, It is a good aerobic stimulus. It is at the very most comfortably hard.
1: Well, and I know from the crew that I work with out at Furman, you know, they typically have a two hour long run most weekends. And you know, this time of year when they're in cross country season, they don't necessarily have paces prescribed to them, but it's it's described as forward where you know the, the most the first couple of miles they kind of ease into it, loosen up and kind of get flowing. And then as that run progresses, you know, they want to finish that run stronger and faster than they they started out. So there's no real specific pace. But that's kind of the the intention that it, it's forward, that uh, you're finding that rhythm, finding that tempo.
0: Yeah, I like that language. They're often doing that over some changing terrain as well, correct? Correct, yeah. Third category I would call the progressive run. And this might be similar to what you just described, Phil, but there's there's differences as well where we are intentionally ratcheting down both the effort and the pace. It could have set constraints around it, like something of three miles easy, then I want you three miles at pace X and three miles faster, et cetera, as you go. I tend to put a cap on how long I would prescribe a run like that. Those can be very mentally and physically challenging to know I have to hit X number each mile. And uh, it takes some real mastery and experience to look out over the edge and not go over the edge and get to a point too soon in your run where you're running too fast. And so if we're setting targets like, okay, we want to finish with the last three miles slightly faster than marathon pace, hypothetically, I might not like that prescription as much for a, like a 22 mile run as maybe a 16 or 18 mile run yeah it starts to get a little dangerous to me at that longer uh, distance. But,
1: and I think that kind of workout works much better for like what we may consider a medium long run. You know, in my case that might be something that's, you know, 8 to 10 to at most 12 miles. You know, for somebody that's averaging 40 45 miles a week, uh, you know, where in your case that might be 16 18 miles of those, those last 3 4 miles at, at that kind of effort. But I think you're right. I think for a true long run that that progression it's almost too hard to recover from in the middle of a training cycle.
0: Yeah, two points to that, Phil. One is I I love a progressive, medium, long run. And not even just from the training perspective, but it's just an, a run I enjoy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So You could use a time like somewhere in that 90-ish, 100-minute range. This is actually the run I had this morning. It had a little more structure than normal to it this morning, but yeah, it was... 16 miles, to to your point, but it was right around 100 minutes. I love that. Then in the longer run, if I'm going to use something progressive that, say, goes longer than 30 kilometers, so I'm out beyond 18 miles, I'm out towards 20 miles, maybe even longer for someone with a lot of experience preparing for a marathon, it can still be progressive, but it might not have the, uh, the same numbers attached to it. Meaning, yeah, okay, so I hit a split. I want to be able to hit that split again or slightly faster, but I'm not telling myself I got to cut down 10 seconds every mile. It just naturally and gradually evolves. I I love to prescribe this run. And then by the end, yeah, you're moving pretty well, uh, but you just kind of let it unfold and allow yourself to work through maybe when you're not feeling so great within the run. I had a really long run last weekend. I felt better at about mile 23 than I did at mile 13. And yeah. I was moving faster. Also, it's a good lesson in allowing those those ebbs and flows that can occur during a marathon or a half marathon, and not getting stuck in. I have to hit this number every single mile. In this way, this is very much the uh, the the Patrick Sang long run, progressive, gently uh, that. Athletes like Elliot Kipchoge in Patrick Sang's training group are using for 30 to 40 kilometers. Often in their case on a Thursday, they're not doing the long run on the weekend. They're putting it in between their Tuesday and Saturday sessions. Yeah, so that's great, Phil. And then the, the last category, category I would put is the true long run workout, where it is a structured workout with marks we want to hit in reps or large chunk segments within the run. That one to me is, it's least likely that the novice runner is going to use it. I, I think it's nice to introduce it to someone with a little more experience, but you're going to see advanced runners use it some, but I would still, as you said, sprinkle these in. I like the, the up tempo or progressive run just as much or more. So someone with experience, you're, you're, I agree with you. Every other week feels like a good cap on this, but every third week maybe seems better. And you started to raise a great point, Phil, it has to fit into the context of your running. So to answer the question of how often should my long runs be hard, we must ask, what does it look like in the context of the surrounding days? Is it a hard effort because it's a hard effort? Or is it because of the fatigue that you're going into the run with Or perhaps third part, is it the neuromuscular fatigue that develops with loading impacts over the course of the run? In that way, the novice runner who's going out for three hours is just getting a lot of pounding. That's going to feel hard by the end.
1: Well, and if I think about kind of what we want from the the purpose out of a long run, these specific efforts or specific blocks almost fit like third or fourth down on the list of of what we're trying to stimulate, you know, if if say the most important thing, maybe we could argue first or second, but number one is just training metabolism to develop that capillary density, to develop that mitochondrial content, to enable you to, to use fuel effectively for a longer duration. You know, the second thing that we want out of this long run, maybe the first, depending on your level, but is just getting used to the time on feet, both you know, for a novice runner, just being out there and moving for two, maybe even three hours, and even for somebody that's experienced, just that frequent exposure to being out there for that long. You know, I, th- I think those are our, our main priorities overall. And then if we look at you know, what extra do we gain by you know throwing in two miles at marathon pace or something like that. Yeah, that's fantastic for somebody that's an experienced marathoner where we're we're training that pace in that condition of fatigue. But for you know, somebody that's a novice, that's a that's a huge load to just recover from when we may want to train that in a different workout, a different different point in the week or a different point in the in the cycle.
0: And then there's that novice, also, Phil, who's I suspect this is not many of the folks who listen to our program, but it is something important to consider there's the person whose marathon pace is the everyday pace Yeah, because their goal is simply just to complete the race and they don't have experience of running faster paces. They might be doing specific work, if you want to call it that, almost every day. You said, what's the purpose of this hard long run at at the beginning of your previous statement? I had that written down in my notes as well, Phil. And my answer is an answer I've given here a lot of times. Ask yourself the question, why are you doing what you're doing when you're doing it? What's the point of it at this moment in your training? That helps unlock a little bit about when we put in the long run workout, when we work on, let's say, marathon pace in a workout. It's in that most specific period as you near your race. That's the time to best use these type of workouts. The other categories of long run, if we look at from a global year round perspective, are probably more valuable overall. But in, say, the six to eight weeks out from your race, yeah, you could be doing these much more consistently. Maybe if we wanted to find exceptions to our position about if we're capping about every two or three weeks, the cap would be, well, Okay, I need to go back and look at that context of the surrounding days maybe I'm someone who only works out twice a week. Maybe I put a a midweek workout on a Wednesday that's something a little faster. It's threshold work or critical speed, whatever it might be, hills. And then Saturday or Sunday is my long run day. And, And so I'm giving myself three days before the long run and after the long run. Well, then it's a little easier to justify more long run workouts because of the recovery that you have built in. So that context is developed even a little bit more. The next piece in knowing why you're doing what you're doing when you're doing it is what is the event you're prepping for? We've been talking about marathons so far, but hard long runs could have some value at other distances, even down to 5K and 10K they're probably not long run workouts as much though. You could make this progressive or up tempo long run kind of hard for a 5k runner, and it still could have tremendous value. It might not cover as much distance, but for that type of for a 5k athlete, if it's 12 miles, that's a pretty substantial number.
1: And with that 5k 10k range, I mean, you're still going to be doing a long run, but You'll get much more benefit of doing a more frequent long run workout, but maybe at a mileage of, you know, 10 to 12 to 15 miles versus, you know, somebody like yourself that's putting in long runs of, you know, frequent long runs of 20 to 22 miles and and that sort of thing. So treating it for somebody that's training for a a 5K, 10K is just an extra workout in the week is a totally different scenario than somebody that's doing much longer long runs for a marathon or something of that nature.
0: All right. So let's take, you were talking about the kids you work with at Furman. It's a two hour long run. You described mm-hmm. it, right? And and that's the default that I use is something around two hours when I'm not specifically prepping for an upcoming event. At an up tempo, or as you said, forward effort, as they call it, in two hours, how much distance are they covering?
1: 17 miles.
0: I was going to say 16 to 18 miles, even yeah. on pretty tough terrain, right? Yeah.
1: Well, okay. uh, and, and as well, looking at the pattern and, and I certainly don't want to give the per- perception that I prescribe this training because I just help with the well when they come in having done too much. But <laughs> you know, if we look at the season aspect of things in the fall with cross country season where they're running 5K, 6K up to 10K, it's a lot of the longer runs over really hilly terrain that's more of a strength building focus. and it And it's that two hour long run. But in the in the spring, when they're mm-hmm. racing on the track for 800, 15, 5K, sometimes 10K, that long run is is much shorter, sometimes in the order of 12 to 15 miles. But they're doing a whole lot more work on the track during the during the week or even as part of that long run. Yeah, that makes sense. Virtually
0: every top team in the country this time of year in cross country prepping for right as you said depending on the division nca division you're in 5k 6k 8k 10k they're doing something in the 2ish hour range or close to it 15 16 17 18 miles on the long run is very common uh, they are often this up tempo or naturally gradually progressive style we then in a, in a marathon context we might include more of them with structure, with pace in them as we near our key event. Let's say it's the less experienced runner, but we've stepped beyond just doing an easy run long run. We might get two marathon specific Long run workouts, uh, you know, just some blocks with marathon pace in them. So you start to feel that and, and get comfortable. Or even you could do it slightly faster than, or slightly slower than, or alternating between the two. As you get more experience, you might do a couple more. You might have four or five in a block. In this case, it's really important to remember that certain long run workouts do more to refine skills like surging and racing. That's why the top runners are employing them. Other long run workouts are more about sharpening the specific race pace, which for the middle of the pack, when to some degree you're really time trialing, most runners at a marathon are time trialing more than racing. They're benefiting from the competition and the aid on the course and all that to reach their best, but they're not in the competition to win. And so sharpening skills like surging and racing might not be quite as significant for them over the marathon distance, at least. We might still want to work on those skills so that we can overcome the deleterious impacts of getting caught up in running a little bit too fast, uh, too early, getting swept up in a pack that's too fast, or getting caught in a pack that's too slow and wanting to move up to a pack that's faster. You can also set up the workout so that it works on both those skills of racing and surging and also your goal pace. Think about in our Road to LA 84 series, the long fartleks that we saw from Greg Meyer in his 83 Boston build. We went into great detail in mile 151. He did a number of the Bill Squires, what we call Tiger and the Cat long runs, uh, where you're surging, you're doing it over hills. So you're, you're replicating racing surging and also course terrain. That's one that we can all benefit from getting on a terrain that looks like our race. You could fold that into a workout that has some marathon pace into it. So let's create a hybrid. You know, there's traditional blocks, like you'll see people do 5k at marathon pace with a short recovery or a short float. You could also combine these, do something like two miles at your marathon effort, then move into a fartlek where it's minutes on, minutes off, or it's alternating back and forth between paces that are slightly faster than and slightly slower than marathon pace, then come back and cap it at the end with two miles at marathon effort. That helps teach you and sharpen your ability to run your marathon effort when you're tired and you've already surged or you've overreached at some point during the long run. It's important to, again, remember why you're doing what you're doing because Uh, Just because you see a long-run workout out there on the internet, it might be an elite runner who's trying to win a race, not just run really fast. Fast might be more so a byproduct of being competitive. I would also consider the frequency of how often you run long. We have a tendency towards running long every weekend, church of a Sunday long run, or the folks who do it on early Saturday mornings. But you don't have to be on that calendar. It could be nine or ten days, but also it could be that you're not uh, going long even each microcycle. It could be every two weeks. It, it might not be ideal for marathoning, but it might just be what you're forced into because of your life circumstances. And that would affect how often I might do a long run workout as well. So again, it's creating a more global context to better understand how often my long run should be hard. I'll wrap with this, Phil. When I look at my own training, there's not more than a couple times in a marathon cycle when I think to myself, ooh, I'm not sure if I can handle this long run workout. I'm generally excited. I'm enthused for a long run. It's it's one I look forward to as a marathoner. It should be if that's yeah. your goal, right? No,
1: it's, It should be the favorite run of
0: the week. Yeah, absolutely. It's the one I'm looking forward to. I'm building to it, even though I know it's going to be hard in the sense of challenging. But I don't want to go into it every week, uncertain if I can make it and the fear of blowing up is there. But I think it's okay though to once or twice or maybe three times, but I wouldn't have it that many times, have to stare down some demons and think at the start, like, boy, this sounds really hard because you have to challenge yourself to get over the hump and to have a great race. But also there could be a competence factor that comes from executing that in practice, but just make sure you find a balance there because you might be able to get over that hump in other places other than a long run workout. The best place to do it, frankly, is just the consistency of every day throughout I was gonna
1: say the, the cumulative body of work and really thinking of how many times somebody has a workout, a long run that they're long run workout that they're fearful of as a clinician makes me a little bit nervous because that, that's when you're really kind of playing with the edge of, of what you can recover from and the impact that your body can tolerate. And we do that too often and we're really starting to flirt with injury.
0: Uh, yeah, so let versus
1: me- getting consistent and just putting in a a cumulative body of work. Let me put better
0: context around that because you make a good point, Phil. I had never myself go out and run like 18 miles at marathon pace in training. There's some great athletes who do that though. And they might do it at altitude (laughs) and make it very, very challenging. I'm thinking of it more so from a, a, place where you expose some of your mental insecurities a little bit, where you look at it and you think, oh, that's going to be tough. I'm not sure I can handle that. And you have to be able to get through those moments in a race. Mm -hmm. Over 26 miles, you're going to have moments at which you say, I don't know if I can hold this pace the whole way. I don't know if I can pick this pace up. I'm getting fatigued. I'm struggling. Now, every once in a while, there's the beautiful marathon where it just keeps building throughout and you get faster throughout the race, and, <laughs> but you're still going to be tired by the end. You're still going to struggle by the end. I'm glad you pointed that out because I don't mean this from, it's got to be so hard that you're taking big risks. I mean that you have to take yourself past some of the fears. hmm Fear cannot, it, it, fear is such a motivator in our culture, but it can't be the one that motivates you if you're going to be successful. You can't worry the what ifs of if I fail. You can't be afraid of putting yourself out there and taking risks on race day. You can't be afraid of being judged by your running because you as a person are worth way more than you as a runner. And I think the long run workout that takes you just to the edge, does a good job of removing some of the fear from race day. This is a little bit more of a a mental perspective than a physical one, although I do think that workout will be physically challenging. I want to leave it not necessarily collapsed in a heap on the side of the road. In fact, I'm going to avoid that, but it's okay to look at the calendar and think, oh, I got a little chunk at marathon pace in this, and then I got to run a little bit faster, and it's for four miles, and like I've really only done it for three, and I got to do three sets of it, or I've only done it for two before. You start going through the math of how much time you're going to be out there. That, to me, once or twice is a tool that can really sharpen your edge for race day.
1: Well, it, it leaves you when you enter that race and you you reach those spots where you're struggling or you're not sure if you can continue to push with that confidence that I've been here before in training, this can get better and I can work through this.
0: Yeah, that's well said. It's to some degree, it's that simple. It's also important to remember for many reasons why it's so much easier to execute on race day in a marathon than to do these in a workout. So you can't beat yourself up thinking, well, I got to do this for 26 miles. I sure as heck better be able to do it for 20 regularly in practice. No, not necessarily. You do want to be able to, as coach Renato Canova would say, run fast and long. You can't expect to just run slow and long or fast and short. You got to bring them together a little bit but there's the body of your work throughout the entire training. There's the excitement and adrenaline of race day, the competition, the taper, all those elements that make it a little bit easier to execute on race day. And frankly, the probably the biggest one is your ability to channel mental energy on a race day for 26 miles, that if you tried to do it for every session in practice would just fry you. You have to find an appropriate amount of mental focus every time you get out. And even within a week, you could start to practice this by saying, okay, this is a longer, bigger one. I I need to give this the respect it's due and really dial in mentally for, for this 90 minutes, two hours, whatever it might be. And then on the easy recovery day, it's okay to just drift off and not even think about it and run extra slow. And that, that is like the hard, easy approach of mental running in addition to the traditional hard, easy approach of physical running. Phil, you have any last thoughts you want to add?
1: I think that covers it, man. That was a nice conversation.
0: Yeah, I enjoyed that. Great question. I'm glad we could go through that now. Um, shoot, we're looking at, you know, our Chicago folks are probably getting to those last big long yeah, runs and long run two work. Two weeks
1: out, three weeks out or so. And Yeah, um, they're,
0: they're three plus out right now, but you got your other, you know, your fall majors a little over a month from, from New York, six weeks or so. So those folks are, are getting right into this. You got CIM. You got the biggest event on the East Coast in Greenville at the end of October on the Swamp Rabbit at the <laughs> marathon. <laughs>
1: Things uh, run fast. <laughs> I haven't
0: I haven't seen an elite field out yet, but there are some names simmering. I've already heard the Mo Farah coming out of retirement conversation. Oh,
1: you couldn't resist racing down the Swamp Rabbit Trail in the, yeah. the dark of the pre-dawn hours. It is a once
0: in a lifetime headlamp road racing experience. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Phil, I have a shoe review and then a shoe first impression that we will Ooh. close with tonight. We didn't get to do these last time. I'm going to go to the trail tonight for my full review. That is the New Balance More Trail version three. I'm holding that beefy baby up to the screen for you right now, Phil. That is a whole Holy lot of stack. Man,
1: I'm thinking about how beautiful, tall, and handsome you're going to look standing in that thing, man. I swear to another you. another two inches to you.
0: I am six feet seven inches tall in this. <laughs> I still weigh like 150 pounds. It's incredible. <laughs> it looks ridiculous, but I'm like six seven in this sucker. It's fantastic. And that width on that that last man. Let me go ahead and say it, Phil. We don't do trail shoe re- tra- trail shoe reviews here often. We've gotten into them a little bit. You run a little more trail than I do. I do enjoy it though. And I run a lot of uh, not very technical trails, more like gravel, dirt kind of stuff pretty frequently. I have used this shoe in that setting. But just more broadly, I'll say that I believe as a running shoe store employee, this is the most comfortable shoe overall in the store right now. Like just pure comfort. It's the best shoe we have.
1: Well, I was you blew me away when I asked to see it and you pull it off your foot because you've been wearing it in the shop all day.
0: Right. That's the thing. I have to be up on my feet on a hard floor working most of the day and I'm wearing this shoe. That's that's a sign. There is nothing better when a shoe updates than when it gets significantly better and the price goes down. It's actually a few dollars cheaper than last year. Like when does that ever happen? That almost never happened. Oh it it was (laughs) a huge like the upgrade in the quality of the shoe and the comfort but also just the design update like it looks better even they did some great color schemes there's some women's colors in this shoe that if they would send me a 13 wide women's i would be wearing them regularly i am seriously interested in getting another pair of this sh- these shoes okay so let me stop blabbering with the platitudes and let's get into some specs here it takes the fundamentals of the New Balance Fresh Foam More, which is their road shoe designed to be competitive, like with a Hoka Bondi kind of in that category. It's the high stack, the soft foam, four millimeter drop, four foot rocker, and it's applying all that to the trail. Every time I put the More on, I like it, but excuse the pun, this is ridiculous. I don't have a better synonym i i'm left wanting more <laughs> every time i put it on and it's just as felt like something is missing in the more that's not missing here and i i don't know the reason why i've, I've tried to do some research and i don't know if it's how the foam interacts with that vibram outsole uh, if you know there's yeah. lugs, the grip, the the firmness of the the outsole, if it's the sw- the slightly wider last and how that fits, the slightly different durometer in the fresh foam as compared to the road version. But I just feel like this has what I have seen as missing in the road version. So I'm wearing it at work when I'm on my feet all day. I've run on what I'll call light trails, dirt, gravel. Uh, wood chips. It is going to be my hiking shoe for a trip out west next month. The potential drawbacks I see are, given the width and the stack, and as we said, this sucker is just mammoth. It's not light. That doesn't bother me as much on the trail as like I I really enjoy a light shoe on the road. Yeah. Uh, I, I'll just take that trade off all day for the comfort of this shoe. I have doubts that it'll be very nimble on technical trails. I, I could see that being a, a very real concern if you're more of a technical trail runner. Also, a, a little concerned about a response to water with significant water crossings. This is not the mega grip outsole, uh, it's a different composite. I am a bit nervous about it not being quite as grippy, say, when you have really. Really serious water that you encounter on a trail run. I would have some hesitations there, but for the aesthetic, the comfort, the value at the price, it ticks the boxes, fresh foam, more trail. And this, uh, I'm already declaring it. What is it? September? I I am declaring this is my trail shoe of the year. I know that there's some really, really cool trail racing stuff that's coming out now uh, as we're starting to better experiment with some of the uh, carbon plates, how to use them in trail shoes. But this is going to win it for me.
1: Well, my question here with seeing that and kind of reading about it, I haven't been in it myself, but you know, it seems like a well-designed all-day cruiser. I mean, I know it's not designed for racing like some of the you know, the higher end stuff we're seeing come out for the trail. The one that I would put in kind of a similar model would be the Speedgoat by Hoka, which, yep. you know, I've been in that model before, and that's a really great shoe. It's not fast, but it's got great traction. It's very comfortable. It rolls nicely. And it's just a shoe, whether it's for hiking or for spending several hours rolling on the trail, that, that works really well. How does that one compare to something like the Speedgoat?
0: I'm taking this shoe a hundred times out of a hundred. Yeah. The speed goda is a good shoe. But My one complaint about it in certain iterations over the years is that the forefoot has been too narrow. <laughs> um, that it was particularly among, traditional hoka models you know hoka's changed over the years it's mainstreamed and refined their earlier stuff it it looked a lot like this in as far as the last of the shoe and uh, some of those speed goats i I just didn't quite have the comfort up front Uh, yeah the the speed goat is a great trail option if i was grading trail shoes like the speed goat to me is like a b shoe yeah I like it way better than, say, a Brooks Cascadia, yeah, which is super traditional. But then this goes to a next level. There's just not a lot of trail shoes, to as If we get away from the trail, there's not a lot of trail shoes that I'm just willing to wear at work and just wear around every day. Right. It has an added level of comfort to it that is... It's unique within the category. I would say the Hoka that might be closer in certain iterations, certain versions, at least in different years, is more of like a Stinson ATR. Okay. That had that real high cushion feel to it. Yeah. I'd say this is, this goes maybe a little bit more in that category as a competitor. Okay. Okay, second one I have for tonight is more of a first impression. Got to demo this shoe at a track session last month for our training group. This is the Cloud Boom Echo 3 from ON. This is their new this summer racer. It is a massive step forward for ON. It is a real competitor for my race shoe, particularly at the 5K and 10K distances. I think it stacks up with anything at those distances. Like many of the On models, it has a tremendous upper and it feels excellent on top of the foot. If you like a more traditional racing flat shape silhouette rather than the chunkier super shoes that we see out for marathoning right now, this is very probably your shoe. Felt great under the heel at strike, but I would need a longer effort to evaluate how it holds up with the four foot cushioning for the long haul in a marathon. I know some people in our training group are weighing that right now. In On is doing a wonderful Olympic trials program and supporting athletes who want to wear this shoe. It's well-funded. There's some athletes we have that are experimenting with it. I myself am nervous about it, but you know what, Phil? This is where... We say this so often, a decade ago, you would have taken this in a heartbeat for a marathon, right? It's just that we've gotten spoiled. The biggest first impression to me is also in comparison with a Hoka, since you brought up that brand. That's the newer Hoka Rocket X. It's not that the shoes necessarily feel alike, so so don't think that's the comparison. It's the amount of improvement for the brand in their flagship super shoe.
1: Yeah. Well, especially with Hoka, where that first Rocket was well then get off the launch pad but the second one is jokes. getting huge reviews oh i hey i got the dad jokes this, this guy's just pulling
0: out he's got like <laughs> space station jokes oh houston <laughs> phil's got a problem we got problems <laughs> no you're right like that rocket x early editions carbon x it was they were banking on having a plate in the shoe but they were putting traditional EVA foams around it rather right. than, than the base age foams, Phil. Uh, <laughs> the on shoe, it, it's a different kind of jump that it's made, but it's just as substantial. Another piece I'll add on it is I am most frequently an 11 and a half. Someone else in the group needed 11 and a half for the demo. So I went down to 11 and I was very comfortable there. It might even be the size I would want. That's something you'll want to try on to see how, how it fits for you. And I say that in part because I'm thinking, well, I'd probably use it for like a 5K or 10K. I might not get the type of swelling I get on my longest runs and not so worried about the toes banging into the front. So it's it's really good. It's got a nice look. You're seeing it more because of the success of the on athletes like the OAC team out of Boulder. They're going to make a push to be on the starting line on a lot of feet in February in Orlando at the marathon trials. But I also think you'll see some really great performances in road, mile, 5K, 10K type events. So really exciting. It's a little bit more expensive than the other shoes in the category. Now you got a lot of stuff in that kind of 250 range that this compares to. You're going to bump up a little closer to $300. My opinion, Phil, is that uh, at this point, when you're spending that kind of money, I don't know that it matters. I don't know that there's a reason to try to undercut the other brands. Sell yours, be confident in yours at whatever price it is. To some degree, people, it feels like, become even just more likely to buy this stuff when it's more expensive because they convince themselves that it's going to be even better given the price point.
1: I think what's nice about that market at this point is that every company has something that's similar and that is competitive, and that yeah, there's some differences across the board, and there's probably some differences that relate to you as an individual, but you know it's not just Nike and then everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think to me, you know, yeah, these things are expensive, but folks are investing a lot for racing their marathons not just in the the time of training, but also the travel and the race entries and all that. So it's a, a growing market for this category, but as well, knowing that try these things on and see what works well for you and how they fit. And, you know, whether it's a Nike, whether it's an on, whether it's a Saucony, you're going to get some improvement, some performance improvement out of it. If you're
0: willing to spend to travel to Chicago and pay the race entry, to try to run a flat, fast course with good competition, you're most likely willing to buy a pair of shoes that are a few hundred dollars that you can wear for multiple races. I I wouldn't skimp on that shoe if you're buying plane tickets in the hotel and everything else. Last one on this, Phil, is you and I have discussed this over the past few weeks. We're seeing the brands hinting at this, the whispers that I'm hearing. The next big step, and I don't know if it'll happen before Paris... I think you'll see some prototypes like this at Paris, but it feels like the next leap is that we'll look back and say, why did we wear those shoes with those enormous stacks? Because we'll be able to put the same technology into something that's a little lighter, lower to the ground and more nimble. And so these will, these will, I believe at some point appear as antiquated to us, even though we're still seeing like the, um, the prime X from Adidas and these shoes that are going way above, because what's going to happen is we can pack that same amount of like reduction and load impact forces into a better foam that's so much lighter weight, Like the, uh, you know, I think this is more of a marketing play, but it's a first step. This Adidas Evo Pro that uh, Mm -hmm. the ads came out for today at $500 that's like under five ounces at the sample size. I think that's the direction that we're headed so that you can feel racy, if we want to call it that. That felt weird to call it that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But to still get the benefits of the high stack super shoes. It might be a few years down the road, but that's what I see, Phil.
1: Here's where I disagree with that, and I think it's more. I mean, now we're just guessing, but I see where you're going with can we make these lighter with even better foam technology with a little lower profile that has that traditional, you know, racing flat type profile. I think what we don't know yet is how much that extra stack contributes to the improvements in running economy, and that you know, going from a 40 mil shoe height down to a a 30 mil midsole height now you're losing 10 millimeters but what role does that play as we consider the leg as as essentially a lever arm Mm -hmm. uh how much does that the increased height that we see now lengthening that lever arm improve running economy uh so in short i don't know but i i I could see this being kind of the next step and going shorter midsoles but i also could see that not working out well either.
0: Phil, some men like you see things as they are and ask why men like me dream things that never were and ask why not. (laughs) Don't you think your point's very well taken. Don't you think they'll figure out a way to create that, as you said, referring to it as the lever arm to create a a similar phenomenon and a shoe that packs other elements 10 years ago, we did not see these foams and, and these plates doing things the way they do now. And even when they first came out, they didn't have the stacks that we have now or the width mm-hmm. that they have now. But ultimately, if you can put all that in a smaller, tighter package and still create the mechanical advantages, that seems like it would be the answer. So I'll leave it here, Phil. Let's watch. Well, re- oh, 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 oh. oh, no, no. Here, no. Hey, <laughs> Phil, this is my show, baby.
1: <laughs> Go ahead. So here's, here's the drum that I've been beating for a little while with what I, I I want to see out of these shoe companies and what I really think the next big step could be or is twofold. One is 3 One, a shoe that gets you off your couch eating dots and actually running <laughs> miles. Go ahead. A shoe that allows me to eat dots guilt-free. <laughs> um, <laughs> number one is, is sizing from 3D printing. Yeah, that's, so that's the thing. Yeah. The, We can create a shoe that truly fits your individual foot shape. You know, I think about like a a Hoka, which, you know, I love the ride, but I'm 50 50 on the brand in general just because I I always get a weird fit in my forefoot. Um, That is,
0: that is coming soon, don't you believe?
1: To a degree, I think it's probably already there. And particularly with like your Nike and Adidas. Number two, though, is, is looking at, how these foams affect, we'll call it the resonance frequency of the limb when it's hitting the ground. So being able to tune that resonance of the individual runner and how they impact the ground and optimize that for each individual. So it's not this person likes Zoom X, this person likes Power Run PB, you know it, it's this person hits the ground at this kind of impact frequency. And we have a foam durometer that mm-hmm. optimizes the the energy return from that. But I think we're a ways off from there. Yeah. And
0: part of the reason we are a ways off from that is the samples that they're using, the cohorts to test these shoes. They are elite athlete cohorts who have similar, not the same, but similar results in that testing that you're describing. And then we're trying to take those numbers and extrapolate to the masses yeah. and it might not work, but the market where they make their money is by testing them on the elite athletes, because that's where we see them in the big races and we think they're faster. It might not make the three and a half hour marathoner faster. They're going to have to figure out a market to do that efficiently with these like more, if you want to say individualized foams. Yeah. Yeah, And so there's probably some economic hurdles that make that one a little farther down the road. Okay. So Phil, now we'll leave it here. (laughs) We'll we'll regroup in like 500 episodes and we will discuss what the shoes look like and we'll see where the future has headed. And if we look back and laugh at our alpha flies or whatever it is, because uh, Every generation we've done this, every generation the shoe has evolved dramatically, maybe not as dramatically as the change to like the p foams and the carbon plates, but we had, we've had substantial changes over the course of the history of the running shoe industry. And now those shifts are more truly about making people faster more than they are say about trying to reduce injury risk. Just like in the rest of our world, technology is speeding up so rapidly. I just think we're going to look back and see, yeah, the, that was the best we did in that era, but there's something better that's coming down the road. Agree? Disagree?
1: Oh, 100%. I uh, want a shoe that has the durometer of dots. The perfect softness, resiliency, compliance, along with flavor.
0: Phil will be competing his next race in a dots singlet. I'll be in a golden grams singlet and we will race it off. All right. That's enough for this week. We will see you next time on mile 159 of Seconds Flat. Phil, it's been a lot of fun. We will As always, Travis. <laughs> Absolutely. And we will check in with everybody again soon. Everybody have a great week.